three. It falls down to the animation in a bottom of the world. But uh, they just played it. Here's the line. When Christ comes, then comes shame. For what the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Alright. Verse one, what's he say? Delights in justice instead of uh, um, right, unjust uh, dealings with other people, unfair balances. Yeah, this is dealing in what area? Business. Business. And uh, a false balance. Do you understand what a false balance would be? Unbalanced. <laughs> okay. It's like cheating people in the marketplace. Yes, like a balance is like scales. So you're selling something. You ever been to the deli? You know, they, they, they sell you meat, you know, sliced meat or cheese or something by weight. Well, a false balance, it would be weighted in such a way that it cheated you. It said you were getting, I don't know, what do you buy it by? A pound? It says you're getting a pound, but really the way it's weighted, you're getting three-fourths of a pound. And so they're making money off of it. So God doesn't like ways of cheating people in business. God cares about ordinary affairs, even in just buying and selling. And he condemns any kind of dishonesty in that. Uh, a just weight is his delight. Now you look at the contrast, abomination versus delight. You know, what kind of a word is abomination? A big one. Very. Thank you. And strong. Yeah. If it's an abomination to God, God can't stand it. He despises it. God can't stand dishonesty in business. But he delights in justice. There's not many times in Proverbs where abomination and delight are put together. So that really tells you something. Be honest in business. All right, uh, and then in two, what's he warning about? Pride. What ends up happening if you're proud? Shame. Can you think of any examples in the Bible? Nebuchadnezzar. Wow, that was very uh, synchronized. <laughs> What, what did Nebuchadnezzar do that was prideful? He dishonestly evaluated his um, condition. Yes. Remember what he said? The stuff I've gotten for myself. Yes. Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built for the glory of my majesty or whatever? Just all very egotistical. And what happened to uh, poor Nebuchadnezzar? Turned into an animal. Turned into an animal. Literally, I mean, like, after grazed on the grass, and his nails grew like claws, and grew feathers, and I don't know, whatever. He was just really like an animal for seven periods of time. Can you think of anybody else who was dishonored because of their pride? Moses. Moses. When he hit the rock, he said, must we give you water? Good point. And what happened to him? Yeah, and he had been a very meek man, as Numbers 12.3 says. Good point. Who else was dishonored 
because of his uh, pride. King Herod in the book of Acts. Herod, what happened to him? He took the credit for the people worshiping him as a god, so he died and was eaten by worms. Yeah, not a good way to go. Probably that was internal worms, I'm assuming, not external, but either way. Who else? Somebody said something. It reminds me of uh, that parable Jesus tells about, uh, this, this is just a parable about the man who goes and prays, and he says, thank you that I'm not like this lowly man, and he builds himself up. Luke 18. Good point. Who else? Saul. Saul. Yeah. He was prideful and came down. I can think of a couple more, really, especially one, that I think is a great example of a very proud man who really takes a great fall. Who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, that's a good one. I'm thinking of someone who was very, very sensitive in his ego. And he really, really, really wanted people to honor him. Haman! Remember Haman? He got so furious just because one man refused to bow down to him that he built a gallows to hang him on. And guess what the gallows was used for? To hang Haman on. That was a really great example. So don't lift yourself up. You will have your ego deflated. Humility is not generally considered that great a quality in society, but God does, and he will see to it that you're blessed. And then, look at verse 3. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. If you're a righteous man, your righteousness will see you through. And you see just two different kinds of people. You know, because, because who you are is not just one thing you do. It's your life. So you've got the upright who their good character guides them. You've got the, the treacherous who are ruined by their own schemes, by the things that they do. All right, comments and questions on those three verses. Well, when it first one said abomination, I thought of, well, I'd ask Josh first when it was there. I thought of um, chapter 6, verse 16, about here he says, seven, six things got hates and seven abominations. A proud look, a lying eye, and then another one that pertains to this subject is a false witness. Mm -hmm. And we just got to remember that. We don't want to do anything that's an abomination to God. Other thoughts? Four to eight? Riches do not profit in the day of, or day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteous of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of strong men perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. Alright, um, we've, we've got a lot of stuff about righteousness and wickedness here. And four, we know from chapter 10 there are some advantages to wealth, but when, is, when are riches not a help to you? When you run out or you're done? 
You know, when you run out or you die, they're not very helpful. You know, the protection of wealth is always limited this life. Doesn't help you a bit when you're dead and gone. Uh, but righteousness will. Righteousness is a lot better than riches. A lot lasts a lot longer. <laughs> Gives you a lot more valuable stuff. And then in five, look at what the righteous man does to his way. What, what, how, how does righteousness affect his, his life? His way will be smooth. Yeah, smooth, the thing, smooth, smooth things out. You know, levels it out. You know, it's a lot better. In the long run, it's a lot better. It, it's smoother. It's less chaotic. It's less crises. It's less trauma. It really is. It's so much better to do the right thing. In the long run, it's much smoother. You know, people who are wicked, they're always just careening from catastrophe to disaster. Their lives are just in chaos. You know, the wicked man ends up falling by his own wickedness. It brings him down. Verse 6, the righteousness of the upright will deliver him. You know, it'll, it'll be a blessing to him, but the treacherous will be caught by his own greed. The problem with the wicked man is his desires, his greed. He, he does things that he wants to do, and they're his downfall. So much better to be a man of good character, a righteous man who does the right things. In 7, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. And the hope of strong man perishes. You know, well, what happens when a, when a wicked man dies? What happens to all his hopes and dreams? Now, this is one of the verses, and a lot of the verses in the Proverbs, that imply a belief in the afterlife. Because if there were no life after death, if there were no life after death, what would you say about the expectation of the righteous man when he dies? He would die too. Yeah. Wouldn't be any difference if there's no life after death. Then the righteous man's expectations and hopes and dreams would perish too. But he's saying it's the wicked man's hopes that perish when he dies, not the righteous man. Uh, you know, so, wow. What a wicked man dreads will happen. What he hopes for won't happen. And then eight. The righteousness is delivered from trouble, but the wicked man takes his place. And again, think of any examples where the wicked man got the trouble that the righteous man was delivered from? Haman is an excellent example of that. What else? Where the wicked men get the exact trouble that the God, God delivered the righteous man from. The men that took Daniel Absolutely. Because where did they end up? Lions, Dan. They got, and uh, the lions, after spending a uh, night in fasting, seemed to have been particularly famished and enjoyed a good meal on those that had falsely accused Daniel. What about one of Jesus' parables? The rich man and Lazarus? Uh, it kind of turned the table. Remember what that rich man wanted where he was in torment? A drop, of water. a drop of water. What had he denied Lazarus in this life? A crumb from his table. A crumb of food. 
kind of kind of turned the tables. He kind of got what God delivered Lazarus from. So that that's what happens. <laughs> you know, comments or questions on those first eight verses. Cameron. I think it's pretty cool how verse 8 when it says that the wicked will take the righteous place and trouble. But Jesus, he he loved us so much he took it the other way. He took Barabbas' place on the cross. And he took our place for dying for our sins. Good point. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Other thoughts? I have about 9 to 14. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. <clears throat> and by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. By the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps the thing covered. Where there is no guidance, the people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. There's some interesting things from a technical standpoint in some of these Proverbs. For example, verses 9 through 12 all start with the same letter in Hebrew. You know, some things like that, that unless you read Hebrew, it won't help you much. I don't either. But in verse 9, with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. You know, you might not think about this. But a godless man doesn't have to use physical violence to destroy his neighbor. Even what he says is destructive. What are destructive things that wicked people do with their mouth? Gossip. Gossip. Slander. Slander. You know, false accusations can just destroy people. You know, you have to watch a wicked man's mouth. We are all one rumor away from being destroyed. You know, there, there's a lot that can be done that's just really destructive by a wicked man's mouth. So that's what he's saying in verse 9. In, but, but this introduces the idea of our righteousness and wickedness affect other people. It doesn't just affect us. Because look at verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there's joyful shouting. You know, the life of, of, of the people in the city is greatly affected by the people in the city. And the best thing for the city is for the righteous to do well and the wicked man to perish. He says in verse 11, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it's torn down. So there's a lot of impact on the whole community, the whole society by whether the righteous or the wicked are prevailing. That's, that's very true. And then look at verse 12. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. So, what should you do when your neighbor does something shameful? What should you say about it? Nothing. Why? Because it's not good to be talking about 
That's exactly right. What do they say we ought to do? What's our popular proverb about that? If you don't have nothing nice to say, say nothing. Yes. If you can't say anything nice about somebody, just don't say anything. I think there's a lot of truth to that. If your neighbor lacks sense, what will happen? As far as people knowing about it. It'll be known whether you spread it around or not. Absolutely, they'll figure it out. You don't have to tell anybody. It's pretty obvious. You know, you take some really, you know, person who lacks sense and character, pretty soon everybody knows that you don't have to say a word. Better for you not to say a word about it. You know, when we, so a lot of times, what's the motivation for running people down? Yes, and it doesn't work well. You know, um, he says that, that he who despises his neighbor lacks sense. You don't have good judgment. You don't have a sense of, of manners and decency when you run other people down. Some people, they just love to tell the bad stuff on everybody. You know, I, I remember a man that I had casual contact with frequently, fairly frequently. And he was a Christian. He may have been a good man in many ways. But you know how I knew him? He was the guy that was always telling about everybody else and all the bad stuff. And the guy who was always asking you questions about, you know, what do you know about this person? What do you know about that person? And then he was always informing you of the dirt on everybody. That's how I knew him. And that's just, that's just kind of, to me, every time I was around him, that's what the conversation was. I didn't feel good about that. I don't know if he told me the truth or not. I have no idea. Most of the time, I didn't even know the people. <laughs> Sometimes I'd heard of them. But, but it's like, whoa. It just, that wasn't a very wise thing to me. Uh, it would have been much better for him to keep silent. He may have known a lot of bad stuff about people. But it's probably better just not talk about it. <laughs> Mostly, there's not a lot of value in telling the bad stuff we know about somebody. And mostly, you'll know plenty of bad stuff if you live very long and keep your ears open. I mean, mostly, you're going to, I mean, if you wanted to, you can go through it and you can tell all kinds of stuff about a lot of people. What's it going to do for you? And truth be known, like it could be said about ourselves. <laughs> what if everybody else was doing the same thing to us that we're doing to them? That, that'd be awkward for us, wouldn't it? You're hoping some people keep their mouths shut now and then. I don't know. Have you ever had this experience? I hear this sometimes. And, and I think if we apply this more broadly, it would help. Have you ever been in a situation where you did something pretty stupid, kind of embarrassing, not very wise, and your family knew about it, and you heard like your mom or your dad telling somebody about what you've done? How does that feel? Yeah. I hear from kids all the time. You know, not all the time, but several kids whose parents do that a lot. Oh, it just bothers them so much. They feel so bad. Well, it's not just when parents do that. Really, it's when we do that to each other, when we do that to anybody. It's humiliating. It's not necessary. If they're really still like that, 
Everybody will find out sooner or later. I'm not saying there's never a time to say anything, but mostly there's not a profit in it. Mostly we're not doing it because it's going to be helpful or there's some good purpose. For whatever reason, we seem to just enjoy doing that. Maybe it makes us feel better. Maybe it makes us seem like we're in the know. You know, oh, I can tell you about that person. You know, I know about this person. Maybe that sort of makes us seem like, you know, we really know everything. I don't know. But it's, it's, not, it's not very good. Comments and thoughts through verse 12. I thought the end of verse 13 was kind of telling. How, how do you apply this? I, I, I looked at this and I thought, well, in, in a sense, it almost seems like as though it's talking about a relationship between two people. But could this also be mentioned in a spiritual sense? What I mean is... Uh, you know, that if you're a faithful friend, you won't go around telling all this, these things about other people. That seems to be the context. But, does this have reference to a godly individual? A faithful person won't do this either. Mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe it's not bold. Mm-hmm. You know? Definitely. Godly, wise people don't reveal secrets. I mean, know about somebody who's always telling you confidential information about other people? Don't tell them nothing. <laughs> yeah, don't tell them nothing. Exactly. Because what, what's going to happen with the confidential information you share with them? Everybody else is going to know it. I mean, that's, that's a very wise principle. You might think about that. You don't want to tell secrets to the guy who's told you everybody else's. Because <laughs> you know what he does with a secret. That's for sure. You know, some people are just much wiser and they know how to restrain their tongue. Some of us, everything that goes into brain comes out the mouth. And that is not wise. Much better to have the self-control. You know, there are some people that you know if you tell them something confidentially, nobody will find out. There are some times I've done this. I don't know if you've ever done this. But there are some times that there might be something that you want to tell somebody about yourself. If you need advice, if you need to confess something. But it doesn't really need to be spread. Every once in a while I've done this. I've tested somebody with something that wasn't very important. You know, sometimes I've, I've said to somebody, you know, told them something, I said, would you please keep that between us? And then I watch and see if they do. Something really wouldn't matter if they told. I just want to see, are they able to keep something in confidence? Or are they the kind of person who spreads everything? And that kind of gives me an idea, you know, if I find out, hey, that's gotten around, I don't believe I want to tell anything important to that person. And, and, and usually, in the long run, that's exactly what happens. There are people you know you don't talk to because they kind of have a reputation. I mean, you, you kind of see it yourself and you kind of don't trust them. That's the way it ought to be. So we ha- ought to have, you know, self-restraint in what we say. Other thoughts through 13? <clears throat> you know, Gary, do we... Uh, I wonder to myself, do we, do we sometimes create an environment where it makes it more difficult. People feel uh, trapped in sin because we haven't developed uh, an attitude of trust with them. You know, if we, yes. if we had more people, you know, if, if we felt confident that, you know, every Christian 
it didn't matter what big sin I'm struggling with, you know, I could just go and talk to anybody about that and I wouldn't have to worry about them spreading it around or, you know, being judgmental, but they'd try to be helpful to me. Would we, you know, I suppose it's speculative, but could we maybe wonder if we'd have a lot less trouble with sin if we just knew that we could count on everybody else a whole lot more? Good point. Would we be able to help more people? if we were the kind of person that they could trust not to use that information inappropriately. You know, uh, I, I think so. I mean, I don't know. Who do you open up to? Do you open up to people that you don't trust? Have you ever felt, felt alone and afraid to open up to somebody because you didn't, didn't trust, know you trust people? Yeah. I think I've been there. Sometimes we get burned often enough it kind of makes us like, I can't trust anybody. That's really sad. You know, you expect that with people in the world, but it ought not to be that way with Christians. You know, I've got a, I've got a suggestion about something else as well. There's all kinds of situations that come up. But here, here's an idea every once in a while. Sometimes you may be in a situation where you get told something that you're not sure how to deal with. There are some times when it's helpful to talk to somebody and get advice. But some of those things you've been told are not things that really ought to be revealed to some other person. Here's something that I think will work sometimes and be helpful. You have to be very thoughtful about this. And sometimes you have to be very careful about details. But sometimes you can go to somebody and you can say, I want to ask you how you would deal with this kind of a situation. And maybe if you say it that way, you're not telling them even you're in that situation. You're just saying, I'd like to know how you deal with this. You can even, you can make up any situation you want to. You can change some of the details. So you're sure that nobody will find out and you can still get the helpful advice. Sometimes that's a good way of getting advice without revealing a confidence. Because sometimes we do need advice, and sometimes it's not appropriate to reveal. I'm not saying there's never a time that it's not appropriate to reveal something. Sometimes it may be very helpful, particularly good things may be helpful to reveal. You know, Paul would sometimes tell people about the good in someone else. <laughs> That may be something very good. We don't seem to have the same desire to tell those things, do we? <laughs> that doesn't seem to be as much fun. And we ought to gossip about those things. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we just need to be really wise about that and, and restrained. If we think before we spoke and if we realize, whoa, I don't need to tell this. You know, and maybe even sometimes I don't know, need to tell this to this person. You know, that wouldn't be wise. And you have to watch. Now, what, what's going to happen? You think about how, how subtle these things are. Somebody reveals, one of your best friends reveals something about another best friend. You know, or how they feel about them, or some detail. Well, you're used to talking to your best friends. And so to this other best friend, you say, well, you know, my friend told me something really important, but I can't tell you. <laughs> or you hint. 
you, you start talking close to the subject. And I'll, well, what's going to happen when you do that? You're going to tell Yeah. You know, that is not a way not to tell. You know, just kind of getting really close and dancing around it. You know that's going to happen. What, what, let me ask you this. What do you do when somebody comes up to you and says, um, you know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but... I, I think the right thing to do is say, well, would you stop and think about that for a minute? You know, I, I don't know what you're going to say, but is it something you really shouldn't tell? If it is, it'd be better if you didn't tell it. Or, you know, why don't you pray about that a minute? Before you, before you talk anymore. You know, because what do we often do? Oh, what? What? You know, tell me. Somebody says, well, somebody told me something, but I really shouldn't tell you. Oh, what'd they say? Come on, what'd they say? Well, we're checking the person to do the wrong thing. We need to help each other be wise. Yes? Um, kind of two things. I think a main, probably to me, the main motivation for people gossiping and just talking about other people is mostly jealousy. Like, I see a lot of people talking bad about someone they don't like because they're jealous of what they have or what they do or anything that they have that they want. And another thing is, I, can't, I, I really can't stand it when you know people that you're, you, you're close friends with and you well, not close friends, but you're just friends with, and you know, you talk to them, and then you just end up that they're talking to you behind your back, like, any time they chance they get. Um, and that, that happens a lot, so we really need to watch out, like, who we talk to about other people. Absolutely. Let me give you another scenario that you might think about. What about this? What about you go to somebody, and let's say, oh, I don't know. Let's just say you're having a real problem with lying. And so you go to one of your best friends and you say, man, I lied here, I lied there, I lied to somebody else. I'm just, I'm lying all the time. I don't know what I, I, I don't know what to do about that. Now, you, don't you tell anybody. What do you think about that? anybody and just going to one friend to try and help you out of the situation yes because while there's because while that's something you don't want them to be a hypocrite but they're not a hypocrite by coming to you and that's not something that other people need to know maybe what if you're the person that's doing the lying should you be thinking? How can I fix it? You know, why is it that when I'm not doing well, my first thought is trying to be sure almost nobody finds out? Is that really the best thing for me to think? Particularly, what about this? You're really having a problem with lying. And you've got a friend that you're pretty sure lies to. Now, have you ever really been felt guilty 
And you, it's kind of, you just feel like you need to tell somebody. So who do you choose to tell about your problem with lying? Somebody you know lies a lot. Why would you choose to tell them? You don't feel about yourself that bad. Exactly. You know, they're not going to be hard on you. They lie too. So you kind of relieve your conscience, and yet you'll not hear anything that really is hard for you. You know what I know about the guy who does that? He's not really trying to change his life. If he was trying to change his life, he'd probably go to some people that he knows don't lie, and who he knows probably will really talk to him seriously. Or he may even tell his friend, be careful with this, but if you want to talk to somebody who you think can help me, go ahead. Wouldn't that be wiser? This idea that we're always trying to conceal information, that really, if we tell somebody who could help us, it would help us, that's kind of something to think about, too. Sometimes, you know, do we really want to change? Or do we want to just kind of get rid of our guilt? So you might think about that one. Some things we try to keep people from knowing, we ought to be telling more. Comments? It's almost like how we mentioned earlier about how people don't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to find out if they've been doing something. Yes. And sometimes we'd rather just go to somebody who always, you know, what if you knew there was a doctor? Think about this. There's a doctor that you know pretty well by reputation, by friends that have gone and all. He never diagnoses anybody with cancer. No matter what their symptoms are, no matter what the test results are, he always tells the people you don't have cancer. And you've got some pretty strong symptoms, and you've got a family history, and you're really worried you've got cancer. Is he the guy you want to go to? Yeah, if you want to die. But he'll make you feel better because you're pretty sure he'll tell you you don't have cancer. Well, duh! If you got cancer, does it do any good to go to a doctor who says you don't? Might as well save your money and not go if that's what he's going to say. You know? It's just like, wow. Uh, but if you're, you've got any friends who you're pretty sure will, uh, you know, tell you what you want to hear, They'll tell you everything's okay. You know, you confess this sin problem. Oh, everybody does that. It's, it's, not, it's not that bad. Don't worry about it. Well, that's not going to help you. Confess to the right people. Guess? Yeah, I think a, a lot of times what I, what I have a tendency to do is I have a tendency to keep things bottled up. I have a tendency to keep them inside me to where... I don't want people to know, and I don't want to talk about these things because it'll take a lot of time out of our, a lot of conversations. It's going to be kind of awkward to tell people, um, and we think that you know maybe if I just keep this bottle up, it'll go away eventually. But that's definitely not the way it is. We have to really just tell people who who really can help and try and fix it. What is the what are the biggest reasons we don't confess sins to people who could help us? A shame and embarrassment. And? Fear that we might actually Yes! We don't want to change! That's one of the things. Embarrassment, shame, 
and, and, and the desire not to change. You might think about those. Look at 14. Where there's no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Get all the good advice you can. Kind of along the same line, don't you think? You know, if you're trying to change something in your life, why would you only go to one person who's got the same problem? Why wouldn't you go to several people who you know could, will give you good advice and try to help you do what's right? If you really want to change. Uh, something I, I would strongly recommend. You know that I deal with lots of people enslaved in sin. And one of the things that I really try to push is become accountable to more than one person. If you really want to change something in your life, you've got something that's really, really not right, really bothering you, don't just go to one strong person. Go to three or four strong people and be honest with them and open with them and ask them to help you. You'll have a lot more, you know, blessing out of that. If you want good advice, you know, when do we really need good advice? We've talked about when you're in sin, but what are some other things? It's not times you need good advice. Parenting. All right, be a good parent. Making a big decision. Making big decisions. Is it smart to make a big decision without listening to other people's advice? If they're wise people, no. What would be the kind of big decisions that you really shouldn't make without hearing several people's wise counsel? Getting married. Getting married. And... Careers and jobs. Careers, jobs, and yes, what you're going to do with your money, new business ventures. Possibly move to. Where you might move, what college you might attend, you know, things like that. There's a lot of big decisions. Those are pretty much this life decisions. They're also big spiritual decisions. You ought to talk and get advice. Do what? If you want to move. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's something else. This is really totally off the subject. It's on the subject of the verse, totally off the subject of what we've been talking about. But think about what the verse says. Where there's no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. I want to turn this to a totally different subject that fits this passage. What about when we're trying to understand the Bible? When you're trying to come to where you get a better knowledge and understanding of what the scriptures teach. Let me give you two approaches. Person A does not want his mind to be affected by what anybody else thinks. He's a person who likes to do things for himself. He likes to be his own man or his own woman. And he's afraid of getting misled. So he tries not to hear any studies or any classes or read what anybody says. He tries to just think about it for himself and he, he thinks what he thinks and that's his view. Person B feels like there's a lot he doesn't know and a lot he can't figure out on his own. So he's very quick to ask for advice. He listens to 
Bible studies and sermons. He reads stuff. And he tries to get all the information he can get as he tries to understand the passage better. Which one's smarter? Yeah, obviously, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense to think, well, it's so important I understand the Bible well, I'm not going to listen to anybody. <laughs> now, is it possible that we can be misled? Yeah. Do we have to watch that? Absolutely. Is it possible we could mislead ourselves? <laughs> you know, it's not like not listening to anybody is going to keep us from being misled. We can certainly mislead ourselves. Now, the thing that might help is, listen, if, uh, let's say you're uh, the President of the United States. Would it be smart to have good, uh, would it be smart to listen to advisors? Yes. Yes. You would like to think that Obama has some advisors around him. Yeah, it's better. Um, but, will just any old advisor do? Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, will any old advisor do as well? No. No. You would like to think you have wise people. You know, you are, you are um, assembling as the president your team of economic advisors. So what do you want to get? You know, the, uh, the, the local mechanic and a truck driver and a ditch digger and a couple guys who have just gone through bankruptcy. <laughs> what do you think? You slipped three out of four of my qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like Chris to be one of Obama's biggest economic advisors? Do better. <laughs> yeah. You would be who know something. Same thing when it comes to Bible study and understanding it better. It's probably not going to be all that helpful to make sure you get the view of your beautician and, you know, the county dog catcher and, <laughs> you know, your local friends that are very biased by some denomination's view. Basically. It's just really ironic. <coughs> yeah, just thinking who would have been some of the first ones Solomon probably said this to. Yeah, even his own son. <laughs> who listened to the wrong advisors. Yeah, absolutely. So what you really want when it comes to Bible study, find people who are really honest, who know a lot, and listen to them a lot. Now, here's one thing you have to watch, and that is being too influenced by one person. Um, you know, it, 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 it's not as helpful if you've got one person that always advises you about the Bible. Better to have several and be able to compare them. Um, I would say it's almost better not to use one Bible commentary. If you're going to use one, use five. Better ten or twenty. Mm -hmm. Because you're not as likely to just be led astray by one eccentric guy. But the idea of, oh, I'm not going to listen to anybody. I don't want anybody's influence. Not a good idea. Jason. Well, at least when it comes to commentaries, one thing, you know, when I first became a Christian that, yeah, I used to do is I would only want to read things in breadth. 
know, when we may look at things with a certain perspective or a certain our own biases, and you know, like I've looked at commentaries on like Acts two verse, the whole book of Acts. Every time you get to a baptism verse, bam, they go into a ten-page dissertation on why baptism is necessary for salvation. When all you want to do is understand the text as a whole, and you know, there may be some denominational commentaries that may be a little more helpful to you. That's a very good point, and it's very tricky. You have two things you're trying to watch out for. You know, you want to listen to some extent to various perspectives because let's say you were raised Jehovah's Witness. I don't know if you've studied with Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're way off on the Bible. And what if you were Jehovah's Witness and all you ever read or listened to was Jehovah's Witness stuff? Would you have ever been able to come out of that? Well, so we need to be open to the possibility that what we've always heard is wrong. And so we're going to have to sometimes evaluate what other perspectives are. The other side of that coin is, you don't want to study a diet of garbage. Because that may mislead you in the wrong direction. So you're trying to kind of balance that. You know, um, you know if, you, if you just listen to a bunch of bad advice, you know, think about this. And, and again, you've got, to, you've got to balance. But what if you're a, a new husband? And so you go to a lot of people who have horrible marriages and you ask them for, for advice. <laughs> well, that's probably not going to help you a whole lot. But what if you are really a controlling, strong-willed man and you only go to other controlling, strong-willed husbands for advice? That's also not, probably not helpful. So I think what Jason's saying is right. I like to know what other people think. I like to understand their perspective. I like to be able to evaluate it. Because I find, I, I mean, there have been some things I grew up thinking that were just wrong. But I don't like to just flood myself with a bunch of stuff that's just wrong from people who are really dishonest. I'll tell you something that I, I avoid in Bible commentaries and things like that. When I see somebody that is just extremely prejudiced and wrong and dogmatic, I quit reading them. Because they're untrustworthy. I, I see guys writing commentaries that they will just twist things so blatantly and so obviously and it's like, well, that's not going to help me. So I try to evaluate it. But I think that's a fair application of this. That we need various counselors, even in our understanding of the Bible. There's a lot of good stuff, too. I'll tell you something that I haven't done as much of as I need to. But I need to. There's a lot of really good sermons online. And a lot of good access to things like that. That we can listen to and, and, and learn a lot. And it's free. <laughs> so that's helpful. Paul Earnhardt's got a lot of his stuff online. Yeah, and there's a lot of good people that do. There's, you know, most really <coughs> good preachers and teachers that we know. Tommy Peeler, a lot of these guys. Yes, Tommy Peeler. I mean, there's a ton of, of good men who have, you know, even when they preach meetings in different places that may be on different churches' websites and things like that. So you can find a lot of that stuff, and it's helpful. Guess. This really reminds me of just what we were talking about, about story of Rehoboam. And uh, he chooses to listen to his younger, uh, more not his wise friends over the wise elderly counselors that he had. 
Um, so it just kind of reminded me of that story, how we really listen to the people who we can trust and know that have more experience. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something to be said for that, too. Although we are born was not a kid. But and while old men are not always wiser. Think about Jesus and how he was opposed by the elders. But in general, there's often some wisdom with experience. And, and it's probably smart. If you're really trying to get some helpful advice or you're struggling with a sin problem or whatever, there's probably some wisdom in not just talking to other people your own age. If you can find a wise person who's older, there may be some really helpful perspective on that then. When it comes to, I guess, trying to find counsel and wisdom, either teachers or commentaries, I think we should make the distinction and really check ourselves, make sure that we're searching for the truth and not just searching for answers. Uh, I think a lot of us are just, you know, when we have all, you know, we're not sure what we think about this Bible issue or this book or, or what does this mean, and we'll just go follow the person that gives us the first answer. But we have to be discerning, like you know, was said in a couple comments here, that we're looking for the truth, and, uh, and if we're looking for the truth, then we're going to be very discerning, very wise, and very thoughtful in coming to that Excellent point, or looking for what we want to believe, and confirmation of that even. I would say this, when you're reading stuff about the Bible, it's not all created equal. There is some stuff written about the Bible that's barely about the Bible. It's more just human wisdom and philosophy. Not very biblically oriented at all. And some of that stuff is the stuff people major in. You know, philosophy, psychology, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not nearly as impressed by that. I, I personally have made it <coughs> a habit. Probably 90% of what I read are commentaries. Because commentaries are based upon the text of the scripture. So they're a lot more focused on the Bible. Just philosophical books about religion are much less helpful and much more filled with human wisdom. Doesn't mean all commentaries are good. But it does mean stuff that's, you know, really not very biblical at all. It's more pop st psychology stuff is not helpful. Yes? I think there's a difference between people who say, uh, I'll believe it when I see it versus people who say, I'll see it when I believe it. Yes. <laughs> Good point. Yes. We need to have been a healthy skepticism. You know, we evaluate the counsel. It's true even in personal counsel. We don't swallow everything. We evaluate. I know you need to leave, so you're welcome yeah. to do that. Thanks for coming. Boyd and Claudia come on over tonight. So. Uh, well, then you have to watch them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, Jason. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm studying with somebody, it's probably the most annoying thing is when someone just just flatly says, you know, I have studied this, I've made up my mind, there is nothing you can do to change my mind. Have you ever had someone say that to you? Yes, yes I have. <laughs> Several times. And, well, you can't really help somebody who won't change their mind. Fixed in concrete, Chase Josh. Yeah, and kind of with that, I mean, you know, we've talked a lot already about, you know, the counselors that we see, but what mindset should we have in seeking them? Um, you know, like he said, you, you know, if you if you have a mindset, well, you know, I'm not going to change no matter what I hear, um, you know, you aren't going to change. Um, it's going to be useless to go to counselors. 
because you won't listen. But also, um, I don't know, I've heard people say, you know, this man is a very wise man, and, you know, I'm going to talk to him about this. And, you know, I know that whatever he says, you know, will probably be the right decision. But then they go to that person, and they say something that wasn't really what they wanted to do, and they go and do what they wanted to do instead of what, what that person told them. And so when we're looking for counsel, when we're looking for somebody um, to get advice from, not only should we pick somebody who is wise, but we need to have a mindset that is willing to listen to their wisdom, whether it's what we had in our mind beforehand or not. Yeah, you know, that's one of our problems, is wanting to hear and follow wise counsel. Sometimes we really resist that. I remember years ago, and I've just kind of used her as an example, many, many years ago, there was a really weak lady in one of the churches that I, I worshipped in. She was having problems. She was actually having marriage problems. Guess who she went to? One of the weakest couples, one of the newest converts in the group, to get advice. There, was, there were elders in this church. There were wise, older people. She goes to a couple of new converts and have all kinds of problems. You're thinking, why? I think I know why. She thought they'd tell her what she wanted to hear. She didn't think coming to wiser people would do that. You know, go to the right people and listen. You know, if there's somebody that you see as wise, listen up. You know, if they say something you don't agree with and you don't like, be slow to just discard it. They may be telling you what you really need to hear. Other thoughts? Yeah, Kim. But you gotta make sure that when you go to someone wise and be like, this person wise, that you don't just take their word for it. You need to search the scriptures and make sure that what they're saying is wise. And make sure, and not just, of course, not, not do it because you don't want to, but to not do it just because they said it. You're right. Um, and, and some of that is, why did you think they were wise? Someone told you. Yeah, that may not be as helpful. You know, but, but somebody that you can see wisdom lived out in their life. They may still be wrong. Nobody's got a monopoly on wisdom. But I'd be slow to reject it. I would consider it carefully. I might feel like if somebody I really respected said something that just was really hard for me to accept, I might want to go to several more people and talk. And, you know, even maybe say, you know, here's the situation, here's the advice I got. Do you agree with it? And why? Good thoughts. Anything else? All right, how about 15 to 21? Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands and pledge is secure. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, 
but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. All right, 15. There's some debate about all these passages like 15, but I'm for now willing to just talk about it from the standpoint of like co-signing alone. There's a possibility this is talking about investments. And if it's talking about investments, then it's saying, don't keep throwing money at a bad investment. But it, it, the language, at least in the American Standard, makes it more likely that we're talking about like co-signing somebody's loan. And what's the problem with doing that? Yeah. If you co-sign a loan for somebody, then your financial well-being depends on their decisions. <laughs> That's not a smart idea. Uh, so don't be responsible for somebody else's debts. You know, that's the principle. Now, there are limitations to that principle. There are times when it's okay to risk yourself to guarantee someone else. But you need to realize what you're doing. Remember Judah and Benjamin. You know, Judah was willing to risk himself for Benjamin's well-being. But he had a good reason for doing that. You know, Paul was willing to tell Philemon, I'll pay what Onesimus owes you. But he had a good reason for doing that. A good reason for, for being responsible for someone else is not that you don't want to say no to them or you're afraid of losing their friendship. That's not a good reason. Generally speaking, if somebody needs a co-signer on a loan, most of the time it's because they're a bad credit risk and the bank knows it. That they're not very likely to pay it off and they think you will. Uh, and when you co-sign the loan, then if they don't pay, you will. And you may not even get the whatever it is. You may just be paying on something. You know, let's say you got a buddy. This is going to apply to most of you when you get a little bit older. You got a buddy who's had some problems with their financial life, uh, but they they want to buy a car, and they, nobody will loan them the money for a car. Notwithstanding, it's not a good idea to borrow money for a car. But that's another story. So. <laughs> They go to you and they say, listen, I really need this car. It's a really great deal, but the bank won't loan me the money. I'm going to pay it and all that, but I just need your signature on here. So they'll loan me the money. Think about this scenario. This guy's probably not the best manager anyway. So he may let the insurance lapse on the car because, after all, he didn't really have the money for the insurance. And then he wrecks the car. The car's gone. Nobody uses the car. He's still got two years to pay on this thing. He's got to have another car. He doesn't have the money to pay this off, so he just quit paying on it. The interest starts accumulating. You may not even know he wasn't paying on it. And then suddenly they contact you with this big debt that you're responsible for. Not a good idea. Make sense? All right, look at verse uh, 16. A gracious woman attains honor, and ruthless men attain riches. Now that's interesting. A gracious woman will get honor. Will a ruthless man get honor? No. What will he get? He'll get what he's wanting. He'll get the riches, but he won't get honor. You know, um, that's the thing. I mean, when it's all said and done, brute force will not get you any glory at all. 
Not, not, a, not a good plan. Uh, 17. The merciful man does himself good. The cruel man does himself harm. What you do affects you more than anybody else. You're, how you behave toward other people is like a boomerang. Comes back on yourself. Always remember that. You reap what you sow. In 18, the wallet of the wicked is full of air. Right? Just in backwards. Wicked man, what he makes somehow, it just doesn't stay in his pocketbook. Uh, in verse 19, it's a life and death matter. Steadfast in righteousness, you get life. Pursue evil, you get death. Opposite actions, opposite destinies, opposite conclusions. Which, which direction you're going to go? Just very straightforward problems. You want to be righteous or wicked? Good. Uh, 20. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. The blameless in their walk are his delight. Now, do you see what's the difference in 20 in, in these two halves of 20? The perverse in heart versus the blameless in their walk. But where does the walk come from? The heart. The heart. You see that all the time. The contrast between the heart and the deeds, or the heart and the words. Comments and thoughts. Then 21, you can count on God to punish the evildoer. This is just really saying strongly, when you do wrong, it will hurt you. When you do right, it will bless you. I mean, you can summarize that section with that. So, you have to think about it. When you do wrong things, you are actually sowing bad seeds that will bring weeds up in your life. You do wrong things, it will hurt you. We want to think, well, I can do this, but it's not going to hurt me. Yes, it will. But you can't, you know, you can, here's, here's what you can do. You can choose the road you're going to travel on, but you can't choose where it goes. Think about it that way. You know, if you come to a fork in the road, you know, you can choose, I'll go this direction, I'll go that direction. You can choose that, but you can't choose where it's going to take you. <laughs> but that's already fixed. You can choose to do right or wrong, but you can't choose where it's going to lead you if you do right or if you do wrong. Got to think about that. Make the right choices. Yeah. One example is like saying, well, it's just one little white lie. You know, it won't hurt anybody in the long run. No one's going to find out. I'll just say this. Then what ends up happening is you got a lie to cover that lie. Then you got a lie to cover that lie. Just builds up and up more and more. You, know, you weren't expecting it to do that. But that's what happens. Good point. Yes. Okay. This whole section here has really reminded me of Judas in the Bible. He was, in a way, ruthless, and he got him some riches when he betrayed Jesus. And um, that brought harm to him. He eventually hanged himself. And he did not go unpunished because he was given such a feeling of guilt that he hated himself for it, and he went out and hung himself for it. And I think that 
all the stuff that it's saying here is proved so many times throughout the Bible. And it's, you really don't want to be on the um, ruthless side. You may get riches. That riches is going to do you no good if your punishment is death. That once death happens, there is no point in money. Good point. Yes. And just the idea of the, <coughs> the unrighteous will not go punished can be such yeah, a comfort to the people of God. And, yeah, we see that like I think so clearly in the book of Revelation. Yeah, where yeah, in the end God will take care of. Yes. Excellent points. Other thoughts? Seems like in uh, verses 19 and 20, the thing that's being brought out in the fact that they are righteous is that they aren't just flipping a coin and heads I'm going to do good and tails I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It's steadfastness. It's consistency. And that's what God wants out of his servants is loyal devotion. Absolutely. It ought to be that you are righteous as a matter of life. You do the right things. You come to choices and you choose what's right. That's your principle. That's how you act. That's how you live. Think about it. Do you know anybody who consistently chooses to do right? What kind of life do they have? Yeah. Righteous. You know? Because they consistently choose they're going to do the right thing. It's happier. It's better. But it's, it's because of choices time after time. It's the principle you live by. Think about it this way. I was using this as an illustration the other day. I imagine for most of you it's this way. I imagine for most of you, when it comes Sunday morning at whatever time you leave for church, I bet for most of you, your family doesn't say, well, are we going to go to church today? Some of you are smiling because that doesn't ever happen. You know, it's not a question whether or not you're going to go. It's Sunday morning, for crying out loud. What do you do on Sunday morning? Isn't that a good thing? It's just like, you already made the choice a long time ago. You're committing yourself to doing that. And so you just follow through on the commitment. What if your life was like that? In every situation, you speak the truth. In every situation, you bounce your eyes when there's some improper thing to see in front of you. In every situation, you... Uh, do what God says to do. It's just the way you live. You already decided. You're going to do God's will. So you don't come to a situation and say, am I going to lie this time? No. You're going to tell the truth. That's your principle. That's your character. That's how you do things. When you have to come to every new thing, and let's see, am I going to do the right thing or not? Well, what a mess. I see people like that. Who are like, well, well, I don't know. I'm hoping I make some better choices. No. You make the choice and you stick with it. You live it. Jason. This just reminds me so much of Daniel. 
made up his mind that he was not going to defile himself. And guess what ended up happening? Yes! What, what ended up happening when Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself? Yes. And would Daniel have defied him, defiled himself if even the other guy he went to had said no? No. He made up his mind. I suppose he'd have gotten killed if he needed to. I believe the Lion's Den episode shows he was willing to do that. He wasn't going to defile himself. That was it. Now it's just a matter of what's going to happen. It's like when we're struggling with a temptation or a sin. You know, we, sometimes we just do not just make that kind of decision like Daniel did. You know, there's, you know, we don't want to make that kind of commitment because you know, when it comes, you know, we, don't, we want to do it. Yeah, there's that part of us that still wants to give in. But you know, we need to make that conscious decision. It does not matter. I am not going to do this. And you're much more likely not going to do it. Have you ever been tempted to take something that didn't belong to you? Yes. Yes. Do you take things that don't belong to you? Yeah. Do you know? Shouldn't. Have some of you been tempted, but you don't do it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have never gone into a store and put something in my pocket that didn't belong to me. I can't say that it wouldn't be nice, but I never do it. I never do it because I'm not going to do that. That'd be stealing. And I was taught from the time I was a little boy, it's wrong to steal. It's part of my principle. I'm not going to steal something. I won't do that. And so, even if I'm tempted, even if it'd be nice, I'm not going to do it. Most of you are like that. But it needs to be true with whatever temptation you've got. You're not going to do it. Okay, Logan. Something to keep in mind, too. It's not like God says, this is what you need to do, and then just leaves us hanging out and peace like if I if I remember uh, the story of Daniel correctly, the king realized that Daniel and his friends looked better than everyone else, and and then he ended up being promoted, pretty much above all the wise men. So it's that's something that's important to keep in mind too. It's not like we're trying to fend for ourselves and figure out what's best, but God is with us throughout the journey. Good point. Other thoughts, Cass? Uh, I think this something that goes along with. But also, uh, we we tend to uh, not get rid of we tend we tend to get rid of run down to only twice a week. I'm worried about it, and I know you use the association, but I'm gonna use it. You know, what's the best way to cut off the axe tail? We'll celebrate a time all the way through. Um, so I think that that's definitely really need to think about is are we trying to get rid of ourselves a little bit so we can keep doing it, or are we getting rid of it completely? Because that's the right thing. Yeah, let me use that illustration again. Best way to cut off a dog's tail, most merciful way, a sliver at a time, or all at once? Hey, way more merciful to do it all at once. Best way to get out, sin out of your life, little at a time, or yank it all out at once? I used to have this experience. My dad owned the landscaping company. We spread a lot of garden bark, and you get all these splinters in your fingers. We always used gloves, but they always had holes in them in the wrong spots. <laughs> Didn't help a lot. I don't know why. 
and my mom would take a needle and get the splinters out. She had, there were two possible approaches. She could really try not to hurt me and kind of pick on it. And you know what happened? It go deeper. That's exactly right. It just hurt worse and worse. You know the best way for her to get it out? Get it in there and out. Oh, it hurt, but it was over and it was out. It was so much better. I tell her, you know, get it out. Just you know, you know, don't worry about hurting me. It's gonna hurt less in the long run. It hurts less in the long run. Get rid of it, and it's over and done. And you don't go there. Other thoughts? Yeah. And don't just start trimming your fingernails. <laughs> Not that some of you wouldn't do well with trim fingernails, but that's another issue. Alright. Anything else? 22 to 31. What do you see about verse 22? I don't know. Never been a pig. But I've wondered if it wouldn't hurt the person that had the nose ring. It doesn't seem to. But what do you see in that verse? At least heard you, one of the most you know, disgusting and despisive animals, and you put this something really nice in the snout. It doesn't help. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe uh, I mean, this would be fun. How many of you think, this is strictly opinion, there's nothing right or wrong about this, how many of you think nose rings, at least nice ones, look nice on people? Yeah. Not as many as I thought. How many of you think nice-looking earrings look nice on a girl? Yeah, most of you do. Um, how many of you think a really, really pretty earring would look pretty in a pig's ear? <laughs> Only Cameron and Matt. And Josh. And Josh. Josh was kind of iffy. 
Don't make it up in mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a really pretty ring in a pig snout doesn't fit. It's out of place. It's like, whoa. You know, do you see that idea? You know, can you imagine, uh, you know, putting a really beautiful diamond necklace around a pig's neck? <laughs> now, what's the point? It's out of place. It's out of place. So what's the point in the proverb? It's a beautiful woman does not live in a righteous way. Yes! It's like out of place. You know, have you ever seen a, a, a girl, a woman that was really pretty when you first saw her and then you got to know her and she was obnoxious? And it's like, whoa. You know, beauty doesn't fit here. It's just, it's like, it's like having a necklace on the picture. It's like, ooh. You know, no amount of jewelry will make a pig pretty. <laughs> And no amount of beauty will make a foolish woman pretty. Amen. And you've seen it. Some of them are stuck up. You know, they're just snotty and just ornery. And like, once you get to know them, what my experience is, once I get to really know a, a girl like that, she doesn't even look pretty anymore. And she did. Well, you know, because you know how it is. Some people, just if you, you don't have to know them at all. Just glancing at them, they look pretty. But once you get to know them, sometimes that beauty vanishes because of their character. Now, the other thing I'd say about verse 22 is it, it doesn't fit very well in the context. Do you agree? And then you're reading through here and then, as a ring of gold in a swine snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. And again, I think this is a proverb that stands out from its context, just like the beauty of the gold ring stands out against the background of the ugly snout. You know, I think this is by design that he kind of puts this in here, this kind of jarring, like, where'd that come from? He, he uses that technique. Every time you read one of these verses that's kind of out of place, he's doing that for a purpose. He's saying that's exactly what you know, beauty <coughs> does to wicked character. It's way out of place. Comments and questions on that? What, what about if you are a um, as a, as a, as a, a person who um, who's concerned about your appearance, how much sense does it make to put a lot of effort into looking pretty on the outside? By using your riches. Yeah. If that's all you have. <laughs> Maybe the best thing you can do. Yeah. Character value is valued so much more, and character will, will make a difference. I love 1 Peter 3, but we struggle with this. 1 Peter 3, you know, he says, your adornment must not be external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit who is precious in the sight of God. He's talking about how women, Christian women, ought to make themselves beautiful. They ought to make themselves beautiful from the inside out. That just makes me ask the question that you know, for, for girls, if you have to pretty yourself up to make a guy like you, why in the world do you want to want that guy? Yeah, that's exactly right. 
Do you want the kind of guy who's attracted by you wearing tight clothes, you know, wearing a whole bunch of jewelry and makeup and making yourself look different than what you really are? Do you, do you want to have to, you know, just totally alter your appearance so a guy will look at you? And is that the kind of guy you, kind of guy you want? The guy who's stunned by physical appearance? You know, that just ought not to be a Christian's emphasis. It doesn't make any difference. The outside, the packaging, think about the character. You, if you put as much effort into your character as you put into your looks, what a difference that would make. What do you think? First Corinthians says not to let have the woman be dress themselves up to be wearing all those people, the pearls, but to be focusing on the intents of the heart. Okay. I think it's something to really think about. Yeah. I don't know, we put a lot of time into like preparing ourselves to go out in public. Like we make sure our clothes are all nice, we, you know, I guess most of you guys care what you guys are like matching and stuff. Um, but like, <laughs> feel like, you know, your clothes are wrinkled or I don't know, uh, for girls like makeup and stuff. We put, put a lot of thought on that, I think. Um, but like, how much time do we sit and like prepare and think about preparing my character, my attitude, my thoughts, my words, so that like when I go out with people, they'll they'll see the right person. I mean, now how much time do I spend thinking, okay, I better make sure I'm kind when I go out today, better not you know get road rage, and so I'm gonna call myself now before you know, ahead of time. You know, I can make sure my words are sweet and and, and are, are are you know seasoned with salt in that way. And it's like I don't know, that's like something I think about. It's more important, is it not? I think we all intellectually would say that, but we may not show that. But other thoughts? Yeah, we, yeah. Well, obviously, I think we're going to do this more than men do, but we spend more time preparing the outside for worship than the inside. Yeah. You know, we can expect to do the same thing. But, you know, we spend so much time making sure we look okay on the outside to everybody. But in reality, our hearts are not where they need to be before the Lord. Obviously, we're not going to impress the Lord because we're so beautiful <laughs> on the outside. Uh, you know, I believe he's got better things than us to look at. The character is what matters. All right, look at verse 23. The desire of the righteous is only good. The expectation of the wicked is wrath. So, you know what the wicked man wants? He doesn't get what he dreads. That's what he gets. We're back to that idea. Then I want you to look at 24. There's one who scatters yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. I think this goes back to a, the idea of a farm. Now, it hurts us that we're not in an agricultural society anymore when it comes to understanding some Bible passages. But, go back to, I know corn. You ever know corn? Yeah. Every, all of you have beaten corn before, or seen corn before, or something. <laughs> uh, do you realize that corn doesn't grow on trees? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen a corn plant? Yeah. yeah. You do live in Indiana, right? Okay. Well, do you know where corn seed comes from? Yes. Well, yeah, it's those kernels of the corn that you eat, right? Okay. 
I bet you anything there's some people who didn't know that. <laughs> We're not agricultural anymore. <laughs> Anyhow, you got two choices when you reap when you pick an ear of corn. You can eat it, or you can dry the seeds and plant them the next year to get more corn. <laughs> not with the same seeds, I don't think. <laughs> that would be a little complicated. That you can eat part of it and plant part of it. But whatever you eat, you don't plant. <laughs> so, what if you want a big harvest? What do you do? You don't eat it, and you plant a bunch. Now, if you want a big harvest, how sparing are you with the seeds you plant? You plant quite a few seeds if you want a big harvest, right? Because you won't get a corn plant if you didn't plant the seed. If you just, you're worried about trying to conserve that seed. Oh, I wouldn't want to use very much. What's going to happen? You're not going to get very much. Now he's applying this to our generosity. You know, if, if we want to be blessed, then be generous. You know, give things away. If we hoard it, We'll go hungry in the long run. It would seem like being generous with what you have would be a way of losing. But it really is more like an investment where it pays you back. The miser only loses what he hoards. Yes? I had a question. Um, this brought to my mind Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Is that really what that text is? Also, I don't think so. Okay. I think in, in the context of Ecclesiastes, he's just saying, get busy and do stuff. Don't be paralyzed by uncertainty, but act. Okay. Yeah. But it is what passages like 2 Corinthians 9, uh, yeah, 9 are talking about, like 12 to 15, the, uh, actually 8 through, 8 through 11. Uh, the, the, the more you sow, the more you're reap. You know, the more generous you are, the more resources God will give you to be generous with. So, don't hang on to your possessions. Share them. That's what he says again in 25. The generous man will be prosperous. prosperous. He who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Now, we should think about that. Some of you understand economics and some of you don't. What would be a reason why a farmer, think about this, what would be a reason why a farmer would not want to sell his grain right now? The price is too low. The price is too low. If he doesn't sell the grain, what will start to happen to the price? Supply and demand. So he doesn't sell his grain, so the price goes up, so he gets more money. What's the problem with him doing that? We might need the money sooner. We might need the money sooner. But also, he's not being helpful to other people. You know, just forcing the price up when people are hungry. He's thinking about himself. I think that's the idea. That he's causing the price of the skyrocket at the expense of people's physical well-being. That's being a miser. That's just looking out for himself. He needs to be generous with what he has. So the whole idea of this is to be generous. Not to seek to take advantage of people, but to use your resources to serve others. Does that make sense? So would it be sinful for a farmer to do something like that? 
Yes, in that context. It would be sinful for somebody to hoard up something at the expense of other people's suffering. Now, you know, there's more factors involved than that. But, but to just take advantage of somebody so you can make more money would be wrong. Be generous. And then look at 27. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor. He who seeks evil, evil will come to him. We get what we seek. Do you see that? Think about that. That's, that's what we've been saying. And then 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. So don't trust in your possessions. You know, they can't do anything for you. It's the righteous that has vigor and vitality. We think what we need is our stuff. What we really need is the Lord. And then in 29, he who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. So, when you, when you are a problem to your own family, what a mess. Uh, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins, is wise wins souls. You know, the righteous person not only thrives personally, but he's a blessing to other people too. He's a tree of life. Other people find life through him. So what we do has consequences not only to ourselves but to other people. Comments and thoughts through verse 30. Some of these are pretty easy to understand and pretty you know, simple principles. They're all good. Look at verse 31. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? You know, do righteous people ever ever suffer for their sins? Yeah. If righteous people suffer for their sins, what's going to happen to the wicked people? That's the point he's making. You know, wow. You can see times when righteous people are chastened, when righteous people suffer for their sins, but if they do, woe to the wicked. They'll suffer even more. So what are your comments and thoughts on all these things? Why is the language of verse 31 rewarded? Should, should that be something that's more neutral? Because that almost makes it sound like a positive thing. I mean, is that just a translational difference with the... Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, does somebody have something different? Repay. Repay, yeah. Repay minds to give you the idea. Yeah, because I was just, I was reading that and I was thinking... We, the wicked being rewarded for their sins. I was thinking something. Yeah, maybe repay yeah. might be better. Yeah. Other comments, questions, thoughts? Cameron. In verse 31 it says, um, we'll be rewarded in the earth. Uh, how much more the wicked in the center? But if they're rewarded that much on earth, how much more... Will they after they die? And we're saying we paid in the sense of even righteous people suffer for their sins in the earth. But yeah. Like the wicked, when they die, they yes. get hell and they get even more than they do here. Yeah, that's exactly right. You don't want to be a wicked person then. That'd be the worst possible. Other thoughts are coming.
right. Uh, let me make a couple of comments before we uh, close here. Um, one thing is, one thing you might think about doing, you know, I think we're going to be doing Proverbs now a little bit more consistently. So before you come next time, if you can, read through like Proverbs 12 and 13. You know, think through it a little bit ahead of time. That will help us, you know, in the studies. I think it would be a good thing for us. And, and really work on focusing. You know, this was a good, you know, it's good to be here yesterday and today. But it doesn't help us if we don't carry it out, you know, if we don't let it benefit us. So you feel encouraged singing songs last night was really encouraging. Conversations last night were encouraging. Being able to study Proverbs is helpful. But what are we going to do with it? You know, that needs to impact us. You know, we've got a blessing. And I just think about some of my brothers uh, and some of your brothers and sisters in Brazil and other places that have never had opportunities like this. They would be so encouraged to be able to do that. Let's take advantage of the blessing God gave us and really use it for him. That's something we really need to, uh, to do well with. Other comments or thoughts before we uh, conclude here? Okay, Micah, why don't you listen? Our Lord, we come to you once more this day. We are so thankful for your word and being able to have it available to us to study and to have revealed to us your will for us. Lord, we recognize that you are a God of wisdom and we long to have that wisdom in our lives. Lord, as we go through our lives, help us to apply your wisdom and not just throw it away or set it off to the side. Help us to treasure it and to be thirsting for it on a daily basis. May we continue to uh, apply it to our lives, for we need to always be examining our lives to see how we ought to be better servants of you. Lord, we thank you for times like these where we can come together with brothers and sisters of like faith. Help us to take make the most of these opportunities and not to be flippant about them. Help us to uh, encourage each other in the future and help us to apply what we have talked about this morning uh, to our lives. Uh, share your message with everyone around us. Lord, as we go to our separate places of abode, help us to be safe as we travel on the roads. And throughout life, Father, we, we plead with you that you guide us, for we do not know how to guide ourselves. For as we have read this morning, when we guide our steps, we are but foolish and our, and our own path leads to death. Lord, may we constantly be serving you and put to death our selfish wants and desires. Lord, may everything that we say and do and think be to your glory, not to our own. It's in your Son's name that we thank you and we praise you. Amen. Amen.